We are in a series titled, How to Meet the Enemy. This is message number four of five. And uh, our title this morning is The Weapons of Our Warfare, Part One. Before I get into God's Word this morning, I just want to say a word about something that happened here last week. Um, last Sunday, I left my billfold in the pocket of my coat, left my coat unattended. Uh, someone during the morning time that we are here and or, or after church, somewhere in that time zone, um, dipped their hand into my billfold, took my driver's license, two credit cards, and a debit card, and by 3.30 in the afternoon had spent $8,337.61. And a couple things I want, want you to know. First of all, if, uh, if you're like me and you leave things unattended, don't. This is a public facility. Uh, I, I rejoice that there is someone here uh, that, that did that because you need to hear the gospel if it was you, and, and you're going to hear it here. And I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that I forgive you, and uh, I want you to know that I, I've been made whole <laughs> in the sense that, uh, you know, there's, there's insurance for credit cards. That's a great thing. And so I have all my credit cards back and my debit card and I have a new driver's license. Um, so I'm made whole. But I want you to know that uh, if, if that was you that did that, I love you, I forgive you. Uh, I hope that you'll confess that and repent of that. Because here, here's the reality. As I was thinking about this this morning, it's a wonderful thing in America that we have credit cards that have insurance behind them. But I would give that $8,337.61 and so much more if it meant that you would receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and, and walk in Him. And, and so I want you to know that. And so I uh, want to encourage you with that, ladies. Uh, pay attention to your purses in this place and don't leave things unattended like I did. So it was a great week. It was a great week. I spent most of Monday talking to police and my credit card companies and my bank and um, so that was good, and then uh, Friday I had a root canal surgery, which was great. And, and then yesterday my laptop decided to go toes up. So what that means for you this morning is that there's a very slim PowerPoint presentation. I'm not even sure what all is going to be up there, but uh, I will do my best to help you. If you need a Bible this morning, I, because the Scripture is not going to be on the screen, Frank is ready with a Bible if you'd like to have one. This morning, raise your hand. Uh, I'm going to try to help you fill in the blanks. There is a sermon notes form in your program this morning, and you can um, use that. I'll do my best to help you know when to fill in those blanks. I'm reading from Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Would you stand with me as I read this for us? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. You may be seated. The date was October 29th, 1974, a very good year, the year I graduated from high school. The location, though, was Zaire, Africa, and the occasion was a world heavyweight boxing championship match between George Foreman of George Foreman Grill fame and Muhammad Ali. It was dubbed the Rumble in the Jungle. At the time, George Foreman, unlike the way you see him now, was a mountain of glistening muscle. He was tall, he was strong, uh, he had long arms, he had one of the hardest punches in boxing. And no one gave the aging Ali a chance against the undefeated foreman, who was a three-to-one odds-on favorite to win, and for good reason. Foreman had won 24 consecutive bouts by knockout, including eight in a row he had won in the first two rounds. He was a formidable opponent. He was the reigning champion. And Muhammad Ali knew going into the fight that he couldn't do what he had done in other fights, that is, go toe-to-toe with his opponent. He could not do that with George Foreman. He needed a different strategy. So he began to study Foreman's fights. And he began to learn some things. Most importantly, that the champion had never gone more than four rounds in any of his fights for the last three years, previous three years. So Ali said to himself, if I can just endure, if I can just go the distance, if I can take some punches and stay on my feet, if I can preserve my energy, if I can just wear him out round after round after round, maybe, maybe I can whoop George Foreman. So Ali trained for endurance. He trained to take a licking and keep on ticking. And he adopted a strategy that became known as rope-a-dope, in which he would protect his head. He would protect his face. He would endure a beating to his body and his arms and allow the ropes to absorb the force of Foreman's punches. And when Foreman did throw a punch at Ali's face, Ali was able to back off or move just enough, just enough to lessen the impact or, or to make him miss. And occasionally, throughout the fight, Ali would counterattack with, with some fast, crisp jabs to, to Foreman's face. But then he would revert immediately again to a defensive mode and lay back on the ropes. And always, always throughout the fight, Ali taunted Foreman, Hit me harder, George. That the best you got, George? They told me you had body punches, but that don't hurt even a little bit, George. 
Harder, sucker, swing harder. You're the champion. You're getting nowhere. Is that all you got? And the more Ali taunted him, and the longer Ali endured, the angrier Foreman got, and he tried harder to overpower Ali and just knock him out. But as the fight went on, Foreman began to run out of steam. He began to run out of gas. And, and you could see him heaving for breath, and the punches were losing their force. And then in the eighth round, Ali knocked him out. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that we are engaged in spiritual warfare in which we personally are outmanned, outgunned, outmuscled. We do not wrestle, Paul says in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As we saw in the first message of this series, we are fighting against formidable ranks of angelic beings that aligned themselves with Satan. He also wants us to know that we are not to react in fear, but in readiness. We are to wage war according to a distinctively unique strategy with unique weapons and with a unique battle plan. We've been observing throughout this series that we are not fighting this battle for victory, but from victory. That is that the decisive action has already took, taken place. It took place at the cross where Jesus Christ died for our sins and defeated the power of sin and the power of death by being raised again from the dead. It's all over but the shouting. It's all over but the shouting. Satan still roars and we are still called upon to engage the enemy. And so Paul tells us, first of all, that we are to be strong in the Lord. This is your first blanks. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord, not in yourself. Be strong in the strength of his might, not your own. When Paul says be strong in the Lord, it means be empowered. That's a buzzword today. But it means far more in this case than to be simply encouraged or moderately strengthened. The word that Paul uses speaks to strength that is exponentially multiplied, exponentially intensified, dynamically enhanced. The strength of his might indicates the fullness of God's absolute strength and power and authority. And what that means is that in the Lord, you have power over things that are external to you because of the resonant, overwhelming power that is internal to you. you. Want me to repeat that? You have power over things that are external to you because of the resonant, overwhelming power that is internal to you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen? You guys aren't even cheering about that. That's pretty great news. Let me, let me say it again. Say it with me. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Getting better. Getting better. So receive his strength. Receive it. Stop trying to live the Christian life in your own strength. 
as if it depended on you. I, I know all about that. I, I tried for years to do that. So if you're still trying, how's that working out for you? Getting a little worn out? Starting to struggle for breath? You may recall the story of a boy named David who gave a whooping to a giant named Goliath. One of the Old Testament names of God is the strength of Israel. Psalm 144, verses 1 and 2, David wrote, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, that is my strength, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. The narrative of David's confrontation with Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 tells us that when Goliath saw David, he said, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And he cursed David and he said, David, this is the day that you are going to die. Listen to what David had to say to the giant. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when Goliath advanced on him, it says that Goliath began to move toward him. David reciprocated. He began to run towards Goliath. And as he was doing that, he fitted a smooth stone into his sling and he began whirling that thing. I don't know how you do that when you're running, but he was whirling that thing. And then he let it loose and it struck Goliath in his forehead, embedded it into his forehead, killing him instantly. And he fell on his face to the ground, dead before he hit the ground. See, prior to that day, nothing quite like that had ever entered Goliath's mind. But see, you and I need to get into our minds and deep down into our hearts the conviction that strengthened David that day. The battle is the Lord's. He is our strength. He is our victory. And because of that, we are enabled and empowered to stand firm. Verse 11 of Ephesians 6, Paul tells us the way that we receive that strength, the means by which we stand against the schemes of the devil, which is to put on the whole armor of God. It's another one of your blanks. Put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6.11. And that phrase, whole armor, in the Greek language, is the word panoplia, 
which was used in ancient times to refer to the full complement of a soldier's armor and weaponry, whether offensive or defensive in nature, everything that a soldier would need in those days to wage successful warfare, to survive a battle and to come out victorious. So when Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God, he is saying that we must not neglect to appropriate every resource that he provides so that we are fully and perfectly equipped to stand our ground in the midst of spiritual battle. In verse 13, Paul adds, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Let's ask first of all of that, what is the evil day? What's he referring to? Well, here's my answer. The evil day is any day that evil comes. You hearing me? The evil day is any day that evil comes. So the evil day is, first of all, and in general, every day in this world controlled by the enemy. Just a chapter earlier, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, Look carefully, then, how you walk. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The days are evil. So the evil day is any day that evil comes, but more narrowly and specifically, the evil day is that day when Satan and his angels decide to turn their guns on you, on your marriage, on your family, on your church, on your hopes and dreams for the future, on your stuff. The evil day is that day when all hell breaks loose and you are under intense attack and in an extreme temptation and extreme condemnation. A 17th century English pastor named William Gurnall wrote this. He said, if by negligence... Or by choice, you fail to put on God's armor and rush naked into battle. You sign your own death certificate. Some of you are this morning, uh, some of you here this morning are, are getting kicked around by the enemy. And you are living powerless, defeated lives because you have neglected to put on the whole armor of God. You're not standing because you're simply not equipped to stand. You're a Christian, but, but the evil day has come and the power of the enemy has, that has come against you has injured you, has neutralized you in some way and, and assigned you to the sidelines rather than to the battle lines. You see, Satan's goal in your life is not to turn you necessarily into some wild-eyed Satan worshiper. If you're a Christian, Satan already knows he can't have you in the ultimate sense, but here's what he can do. He can neutralize you. He can take you out of the battle. He can render you powerless and insignificant so that you're no, of, of no concern to him. Go back with me to verse 13. God intends that you 
clothed in his armor will be able to do two things in the evil day, that you will withstand and that you will stand firm. Those are some more blanks there. Withstand and stand firm. See, God has provided everything to you that you need to withstand. What does it mean to withstand? Well, some translations render this word resist. Resist. It means to take a firm stand against the adversary, to to hold your ground forcefully and assertively, unswervingly, unashamedly, declaring your personal conviction, the truth on which you take your stand. We get a little insight into that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, which tells us that we overcome the enemy first by the blood of the Lamb, that our sin problem has been solved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who offered one sacrifice for all people, for all time, for all sin, and he declared as he died, paid in full. It is finished. And because that is true, if you have looked to Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, when Satan accuses you, when he accuses you, which he does, you can answer him simply and confidently with that powerful truth. My sin problem was solved at the cross, Satan. So you can't condemn me anymore. See, last week I I, I said we shouldn't be rebuking the devil. We shouldn't be, you know, trying to bind the devil, do crazy things. The Bible tells us that never tells us to do. But here's what you can do. You can speak God's word back to him. Not by works of righteousness that I have done, Satan, but according to his mercy, he saved me. Because he was merciful. Because he was holy. Not because I was holy, but because he was holy. I was hostile to him. I was an enemy of his. I was in rebellion against him. But God sent his son Jesus to die in my place. And he demonstrated his love to me this by this, that he laid down his life for me. Revelation 12:11 goes on to say that we overcome him also by the word of our testimony. As, as we declare our personal faith in Jesus Christ alone, our allegiance to him as our forgiver, as our leader, as our king, as our commander, and as we go unashamedly public with it, the Bible says we overcome we overcome. Jesus said, if you won't identify with me before men, neither will I identify with you before my Father in heaven. And some of you are too proud. I'm sorry. Some of you are too proud to even be baptized in front of the church. People who love you and are supportive of you and are encouraging of you and are cheering for you let alone declare your faith publicly. And here's what that tells us. It tells all of us. It doesn't just tell me. It tells, tells all of us because of what Jesus says. If that is true, it's possible that you're not even saved. Because identifying publicly with Christ is not a precondition of salvation, but it is a condition of having been saved. 
So you need to come to terms with where you really are and with which kingdom you are actually aligned in your life. Paul concludes verse 13, and having done all to stand firm. Having done all to stand firm. What does it mean to have done all? That sounds hard. Here's what it means. It means you've put on the armor, you've engaged the enemy, you have resisted him, you've endured the struggle, you've gone the distance, you've taken the blows, you've absorbed the arrows, you've fought your way through the evil day. And at the end of all of that, you're still standing. Still standing in grace, still standing by faith, still standing in Christ, and Satan has not won the day. He has not moved you off your confidence in the blood of the Lamb or or the courageous word of your testimony. You, You have neither denied nor deserted nor disappointed your commanding officer, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 14 to 16, then, Paul describes the weapons of our warfare. Six pieces of spiritual armor. The first three are preceded by a verb that means to be. To be. The second three are preceded by a verb that means to do. And what what that means for us is that the first three are pieces of armor that we wear every day. Uh, Might call it under armor. And the second three you take up as they are needed, as they are needed. So all six are needed to dress for success in spiritual conflict. Number one, having fastened on the belt of truth. Again, some of your blanks, having fastened on the belt of truth. In the full array of of Roman armor, the belt was central. Every other piece of armor relates in some way to the belt. The belt is basic. A Roman soldier would, would prepare for battle by tucking his tunic into his belt so that he wouldn't trip over it in battle. If you have an older translation of the Bible that you're reading from this morning, it might say something like this, having girded your loins with truth. Same thing. It's what it means. It means to to take what what you're going to trip over and tuck it into your belt. The breastplate was attached loosely to the belt. His belt also held his sword. And what, what, uh, when here in Ephesians 6, Paul relates the belt to truth, he's saying this. He says that you are not ready for spiritual battle, even at the most basic level, until, until you are equipped with and prepared by truth. Well, what is truth? Truth is, is that which is real because it was real originally. Truth is the objective, fixed standard by which reality is measured. Therefore, truth is that to which, listen now, to which all things must ultimately conform and will ultimately conform. What is true is what will be standing at the end of time. Today, people want a truth that's relative. They want to say, well, You have your truth and I have mine. What works for you may not work for me. And so, you know, we each have our own worldview. We we each have our own little bubble that we're living in. And 
The problem with that view is that truth cannot be truth unless it's objective. And truth is the objective fixed standard by which all reality is ultimately measured. When in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed for us who would believe in his name through the ministry of the apostles, he said to the heavenly father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Don't beam them up yet. They need to stay here. There's a work to be done here, but keep them from the evil one. And then he prayed in his very next breath, sanctify them, set them apart, cleanse them, purify them, make them holy. In the truth, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is is truth. See, you must equip yourself with the knowledge of the truth because Satan, the enemy of your soul, lies to you. You say, I must equip myself with the knowledge of the truth? Isn't that your job, pastor? Sure. And that's my goal every week. But unless you are receiving it, unless you are proactively pursuing the truth, It'll never be enough. So you must equip yourself with the knowledge of the truth because Satan, the enemy of your soul, lies to you. He lies to you. Jesus said regarding Satan, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a Liar and the father of lies. Did, I, did you get that, that he lies? See, he lies when he tells you this. You were born homosexual. You'll always be homosexual. There's no, there's no chance for you to be anything but homosexual. He lies to you when he says, you're a man, but man, you feel like a woman. It must be true. He lies to you when he says, you want that drink, you need that drink, got to have that drink, can't live without that drink. He lies to you when he says, you want that fix, you need that fix, got to have that fix, can't live without that fix. He lies to you when he says that you will always be labeled by your addiction, so go ahead and claim it as your basic identity. He lies to you when he says a little sexual experimentation won't hurt you. Go ahead and give away your gift. It'll be fun. He lies to you, husbands and wives, when he says that God wants you to be happy and because you're not happy in your marriage, divorce is okay. Because really the important thing is your ultimate happiness, not your holiness. He lies to you when he says carrying an unexpected child to full term will rob you of the happiness that God wants for you. He lies to you when he says that, well, all truth is relative, all roads lead to God. No faith claims are more authoritative than others. 
He lies to you when he says that now that you've blown it, now that you've sinned, God can never love you. God can never forgive you. God can never accept you. God can never greatly use you. He lies over and over and over again. And the fabric of our society is built on his lies. You see, truth is not predicated on how you feel or what you therefore think because of how you feel. Pilots are taught to read and to trust their instruments rather than their feelings. Why? Because their feelings can tell them in the middle of a cloud that they are right side up when in fact they are really upside down. And the Bible says there is a way that seems right to a human being, but its end is death. Satan is the great deceiver who can make you feel like you're right side up when you're really upside down, he'll have you saying and believing it can't be wrong when it feels so right. So you must equip yourself with the knowledge of the truth. Because here's the second truth. You lie to you. Don't you? The prophet Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things. The worst counsel you can ever give or receive is this, just follow your heart. Writer of Proverbs chapter 3, 5 and 6, Familiar verse to many of us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. See, you can't trust your own heart as a measure of truth. You can't trust your own moral instincts as a measure of truth. You can't depend on your own intellect as a measure of truth. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, that is, we, we're in this body, this physical body, we're living in a natural world, we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What are strongholds? Strongholds are fortified positions of demonic resistance to truth. The battle begins in your mind where those strongholds, those fortresses, those places of resistance to truth have already been built. In the waging of spiritual warfare, one of the first objectives is to demolish then those strongholds, those arguments, those high-sounding opinions, rebellious, disobedient thoughts, everything that obstructs God's point of view from breaking through in your life. Think about this. If you reject God's point of view, what are you left with? your own lame point of view, your parents' point of view, your friends' point of view, 
your teachers, your professors, the media's point of view, false religion's point of view, Hollywood's point of view, boom, gotcha. Whatever truth claims you choose to buy into will own you. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, hang out in my word, get cozy, get into my word, kick your shoes off, put the feet up, get into my word, hang out in my word. And here's what will be true. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will liberate you. And see the big lie of the enemy out there that, that, that just kind of hangs like a vulture over our culture. It rhymes. is this. Did God really say that? you really trust Him? you really think that's true? Don't you think God is trying to keep you down? Don't you think God is trying to prevent you from the freedom that you really want and need? And Jesus said the exact opposite is true. You abide where? In my word. You will know, you'll be my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. It'll not only set you free, it will make you free. You'll know freedom like you've never known. The truth will liberate you. It will release you from spiritual bondage and deliver you into the spiritual freedom and liberty, true spiritual freedom and liberty. How many of you are here today? See a show of hands. How many of you are here today who can testify that you have found in Jesus Christ deliverance from slavery to lies from the pit of hell that you accepted as true so that today you are alive and standing in true freedom? How many of you would say that? Amen. Wow. That's awesome. Let's just do that again. I just got a little thrill right there. God is good. Amen. Second, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate covered the soldier from the neck to the hips. It protected his vital organs. Sometimes you hear people say, well, the breastplate was only on the front so that the, the spiritual warfare thing, it's, it's only you know, defensive. Keep moving, or offense, or rather, keep moving forward. That's, that's actually not true. Some breastplates did only cover the front. Others, though, covered the, the chest and the back both, consisted of two parts. The Greek historian Polybius referred to the breastplate as a heart protector a heart protector. And in a spiritual sense, the breastplate protects the heart, which biblically speaking is the center of not just the emotions, but more importantly, uh, the center of your morality and the center of your will. Uh, the heart is, if you will, the throne room of your life where the executive decisions get made. 
And so no wonder then the writer of Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, above everything else, guard your heart. Above everything else, guard your heart, for it is the source of life's consequences. Paul calls this the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness at its most basic definition means to be in a right relationship. So to be righteous before God means to be in a right relationship with God. More basically and and more importantly, to be righteous means to have received a judicial verdict. There's a judicial verdict that has been handed down that declares that you have received God's approval. That not just an acquittal, but an approval. So that you are in right standing with Him. The classic statement regarding righteousness in the Bible is this, that Abraham, the father of righteousness, the, the father of the Hebrew people, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And it's quoted several times throughout the Bible. The one I love the most is in James chapter 2, verse 23. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Isn't that good? He was called a friend of God. God says, Abraham, on the basis of your faith, demonstrated to me by your obedience, your willingness to to take a step out of the Ur of the Chaldees, which was the place to live in in the ancient times. It was a happening place. And God went down to the Ur of the Chaldees and he called Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make you a promise that that I'm going to, I'm going to give you lots of descendants. And, and there are going to be more of them than the stars in the sky or the sands on the, on the beach. The grains of sand on the beach. And those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And in your seed, singular, someday there's going to be someone born, one of your descendants, through whom all the earth, all the world will be blessed. The Lord Jesus Christ. And Abraham said, I'm in. He believed God, and it says, God counted it, credited it to him as righteousness. He was justified by his faith. In his letter to the, current, uh, the Christians in Rome, Paul said, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And that's why Paul said, I count everything as loss. Count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. My law, God's law, anybody's law, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
You guys need a pillow or anything? Feeling okay? You comfy? Okay. See, our protection is not found in any works of our own, but only in what Christ has done for us and in us. Last one. As shoes for your feet. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I've shared with you all before that that the shoes worn by a Roman soldier in battle were thickly studded with sharp nails. Why? So that in close contact in the Roman phalanx, as they came up against the enemy face to face, the only thing between them and the enemy is their shield and the, and the enemy's shield, and they can smell each other's breath, and they're spitting in each other's face, and, and they're so close you can, you can just smell them and hear them. And, and you're reaching between between the, the shields and you're jabbing with your sword. You got the shoes on. And you're able to stand your ground. Not be moved. Just like a lineman in the NFL who wears cleats so that so when the ball is snapped and he makes his move on the the opposing lineman when they collide he has traction and he is not moved off the line unless of course it's the Seahawks offensive line and that's that's a whole nother story what he says in verse 15 and as shoes for your feet having put on having put on the readiness readiness given by the gospel of peace that word put on is is uh shod, to have your feet shod. And and it means to to bind under. It means to strap on securely. And so Paul is saying when your shoes are on, when your laces are double-tied, when your Velcro is firmly pressed together, when you have them strapped on and bound under, you are ready for battle, having confidence that you're not going to lose your footing and you're not going to be able to stand firm. But what are the shoes? What are they? Paul says the shoes are the gospel of peace. In Romans chapter 5, Paul wrote, since we have been justified by faith, because we've been justified by faith, because we've believed God and it was credited to us as righteousness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Any of you need a little peace with God this morning? To know that you're at peace, that He's at peace with you? It goes on in verse 2, Through Him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We stand. We stand firm in His grace. That's where where we need to plant our feet, in the grace of God. Not in the law of God. Not in the holiness of God. But in His grace, there's nowhere else to stand in relationship to God. But in His grace, if we had no grace, we would never stand. Who can stand in His presence? 
We set our feet firmly in His grace. You stand in grace, you stand by faith, you stand with confidence and tranquility, if you will, even in the midst of the battle when the evil day comes and you're under attack because you know that you have peace with God, that nothing and nobody in heaven and on earth can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that your past has no power over you, that your sins are forgiven, that you have a new name and a new family and a new citizenship, a new hope, a new future, a new destiny, and heaven is your home. See, and you can know That's where the peace comes from, that you know, that you know, that you know that your sins are forgiven, that that God's promise is real, that the blood of Jesus Christ covered all of your sins, that when Jesus said as he died, paid in full, he wasn't just mumbling. He was telling us the truth. Towards the end of John's gospel, he says this, There's a whole bunch more I could write about Jesus, more than would fill all the books in the world. But these are written, what I've written to you, these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And we're here to declare to you this morning that in Jesus Christ, as you put your faith in him, you are you pass from death to life. I need to land this plane. Here's what I want you to know this morning. This is where I want to just wrap this up, that you can know that you're saved. Every now and then I'll, I'll, I'll give the opportunity, frequently actually, to, to receive Christ as your Savior. It's my great hope for all of you is that you are in Christ. But some of you, every time I give the invitation, raise your hands, which means tells me that you're not sure that the last time it really took. And I want you to know that your salvation has nothing to do with how you feel. And if Satan is whooping up on you, most of the time you're going to feel condemned. Most of the time you're going to feel inadequate. Most of the time you're going to feel like God didn't like you very much. He loves you. He loves you. And you can know over and over again throughout the Bible, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Over and over again, the Bible tells us we can know. We can know. So my prayer for you as we close this today, I'm going to give an invitation. And here's my invitation. My invitation is, first of all, to you who have not trusted in Christ to do that today, that you would know that on January 28, 2018, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ saved you from your sin. And the second is this, for those of you who are Christians, but you're living with a a lack of assurance in your life, that you would be able to say on January 28, 2018, I drove a stake in the ground on the basis of the promise of God, and I know 
that he loves me, that my sins are forgiven, that all of his promises are mine. Let's pray. Lord God, for those today who haven't trusted in you, I pray that today would be the day that you would grant them the gift of faith that leads to salvation, that today would be the day that uh, you would speak into their hearts a, a, a message of love and of forgiveness and of acceptance, an invitation to be a part of your family in order that they would receive it. And I pray today for those who are Christians and maybe have been Christians many, many years but have never been really confident that their sins are forgiven and that that uh, they are you know, right standing with you. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would just drive that stake. And they would, they would quit worrying, they would quit wondering, and they would just know on the basis of the promise of your word, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Lord, I pray for each one today. Thank you for these who have raised their hands. Lord, I pray that you would minister today and in the days to come, assurance to them, speak love to them, Protect them from the evil one who wants to snatch the word away from them. And Lord, help them to, uh, to memorialize this day in some way that they would remember on January 28, 2018. They drove the stake and never looked back. And I pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our soon-coming King. Amen.